Uh, we are uh, in this series right now in Romans. This is uh, message number 24, and we find ourselves in the midst of uh, Romans uh, chapter 9. Uh, last week, if you were here, we had a, a pretty challenging message uh, on the subject of hell, um, which there's no way around it. It's, a, it's a, Hell is real, and uh, the Bible speaks to it and talks about it, so it's something that we want to look at, and it's something that was addressed last week in Romans 9. Uh, so this week, since we had such a, a heavy subject last week, I figured you're ready for another heavy subject, but this week uh, we're focusing in on the subject of predestination. Uh, another way to understand predestination is a doctrine called election. Uh, and so this morning, uh, we're going to unpack a few verses in Romans chapter 9 that specifically deal with the subject of predestination, which anytime you mention predestination, it for a lot of people brings up a lot of different emotions, some confusion, some anger, a lot of division and things like that. A lot of people have been hurt by this doctrine or uh, this conversation of predestination and all the questions that surround it, things like free will, if God has predestined us, does that mean we don't have free will? Uh, we're going to look at uh, that subject as well. But uh, before we jump in, uh, I wanted to pray for us. And very specifically, as we're, we're going to be bringing up a lot of uh, tough questions, uh, my heart this morning for us is not that every question uh, would be answered, but we'd leave here with a better understanding of what the Bible says. I think a lot of us have understandings of what our good friend has to say about election or predestination or free will and these things. But this morning, my heart is just simply, we're going to look at what Scripture says. Uh, I'm going to ask some questions around that, but my heart would be that we would leave here with a better understanding of who God is and what God has done. Uh, like I said earlier, I know a lot of people have been hurt and burned by this conversation. And my, my hope and my intent this morning is not to hurt or burn anyone, but to present Pretty clearly what the Bible says about this doctrine. So let me pray, and uh, we'll jump right in. God, you are good, you are gracious, and uh, very merciful and kind and faithful. God, you know every single person that's here in this place today, uh, not only by name, but God, you know uh, heart condition as well. Uh, so Father, I pray for those who are here that just need encouragement. God, would you please, through your word, through your spirit, just bring great encouragement. God, I realize that there are some, if not many, who are in the midst of a storm right now and uh, just feel like it's hard enough keeping their head above water. Uh, so God, would you please bring great blessing and encouragement to those who need it? Uh, and God, to those who just need to be challenged by you, God, I just pray their hearts, all of our hearts would be open to what you have to say to us uh, in this place today. Uh, God, as we talk about uh, this subject, this is not a man-made subject. This is something, God, you present in your word uh, so please give us great insight, give us humility. Um, God, help us to understand uh, these very difficult and challenging things that we're looking at uh, today. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John Calvin, who is uh, usually attributed to with kind of coming up with uh, predestination, um, uh, is wrongly attributed to predestination. He definitely put some thought and form around predestination, but Predestination is very much a biblical concept, uh, but this is something that John Calvin said about the doctrine of predestination. The doctrine of election and election and predestination are one of the same. Uh, so they're words that could be interchangeably used, election or predestination. Uh, so the doctrine of election is one of the most difficult doctrines in all of Scripture and must be handled with care, 
caution, tenderness, and patience among those who struggle with it, but it should not be neglected. Just one more time, difficult doctrines in all of Scripture must be handled with care, caution, tenderness, patience among those who struggle with it, but it should not be neglected. Now, as we're looking at these words here, predestination, election, I wanted to start by actually kind of defining these terms uh, so that uh, you know how I'm understanding them and how I think the Bible presents them. So here are two ways, two definitions of understanding predestination or the doctrine of election, okay? Uh, This one is from a seminary professor at the school I went to. His name is Wayne Grudem. He said this, election or predestination is an act of God before the creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on the account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. This is where it will already get tough because I've already thrown out, God chooses some people for salvation, okay? Another way to understand or define predestination or election is um, R.C. Sproul said it like this, God decided to save some members of the human race and to let the rest of the human race perish. Okay, I'll read the rest here in a second, but I just want you to sit with this. This is why this doctrine is very difficult. It's very challenging. Scripture presents that God has predestined us. Uh, Now, I'll read the rest of it, but God decided to save some members of the human race and to let the rest of the human race perish. God made a choice. He chooses some individuals to be saved unto everlasting blessedness in heaven, and he chooses others to pass over, allowing them to suffer the consequences of their sin, eternal punishment in hell. That one is pretty clear, but it's pretty hard. If you were just to walk away and be like, wow, that's what predestination is, I'm not sure I want to buy into that. I'm not sure if I want to believe it. That is a really hard thing to say, that God made a choice in eternity past, and he chose some for heaven, and he chose to let others go and to pay the penalty of sin for eternity in hell. This is two definitions of how we understand Uh, predestination or the doctrine of election. So predestination has to do with destination or destiny. Uh, Consider when you go to the airport, you just don't show up at the airport and you go to the ticket counter and she says, well, where would you like to go? And well, I don't know. I haven't thought about this before. You go, you have a destination in mind. You have predetermined where you want the plane to take you. So the pre and predestination speaks to a time before we were even born, before the creation of the universe, a time in eternity past when God predetermined your destiny, your eternity. Okay, I like how Sproul and Grudem said it, but they basically said God made a choice. Okay, he made a choice of heaven and hell, of who would go where to heaven or who would go to hell. Now, This is something that is throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. These are just a few verses that I will highlight that speak to this. So this is in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Paul, the apostle Paul, has just preached the gospel to people. And it says this, When the Gentiles heard this, this being the gospel, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. 
the, uh, the word, the, the phrase there, all who were appointed, is a way of understanding all who were predestined, all who were chosen, all who were elected, they are the ones who believed or received the message. Ephesians chapter 1 says this, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, I want you to catch this, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. In love, God predestined some, not all, to be adopted, meaning to be saved, to be God's children for eternity. One more verse in 2 Thessalonians, it says this, excuse me, chapter 2, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. God chose you to believe. Okay, I realize these are hard verses and the definitions I've already given uh, are very challenging. Okay, I concede that uh, as a truth. I would just ask as we walk through these things, please don't check out. Don't let your frustration or even confusion get the best of you and say, well, I'm done listening. I'm not going to, if this is what predestination means, I want nothing to do with it. I want you to know that predestination, election, is a biblical teaching. It is not a teaching of theologians who were just bored and were like, we got to come up with something to talk about, so let's just talk about this. This is not a man-made doctrine. This is a God-centered, God-made, God-taught, God-instructed in the Bible doctrine. Now, why is this doctrine coming up right now in the book of Romans? Okay, if you remember last week, Paul was lamenting over the fact that some of his brothers, meaning the Jewish, his Jewish brothers, the nation of Israel, he was lamenting that some of his brothers were rejecting the Redeemer, rejecting Jesus. And Paul knew the consequences of that was eternal separation from God in hell. He went as far as to say, I would be willing to trade places with them in eternity if they would just confess Jesus as God and be saved. So he's lamenting over this fact that some of his Jewish brothers are not saved. Now, if you're Jewish, your response to this is, how is that possible? We're Jews. We're God's chosen people. It's all in the Old Testament. How could you tell a Jewish man or a Jewish woman that you are not saved? Because God has blessed us. God has chosen us among all of the nations. He picked Israel. He chose Israel. So if you're Jewish, you're like, wait a minute then. If Paul is suggesting that some Jews are not saved, then clearly God's word has failed. All of the promises and the blessings, God's word is just null and void if, Jews are not, if all Jews are not saved. So we pick up in Romans 6, and it says this. It is not as though God's word failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Okay? Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. This is a wow verse, okay? It's a wow verse for two reasons. Paul makes clear God's word is God's word. It's not possible for God's word to fail. And then secondly, not all Jews are actually Jews. That's what Paul says in in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. 
for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So Paul is making a distinction. There are some Israelites who might have the DNA, the family line, the cultural background, but just because their DNA says they're Jewish, just because their uh, heritage says they're Jewish, and just because they're part of that cultural community says they're Jewish, doesn't actually mean that you're Jewish. So then now it raises the question, well, who are the true Israelites? Okay, this is where now the doctrine of election or predestination, Paul introduces it here in Romans chapter 9, verse 7 through 9. Okay, nor because they are descendants are they Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was now, this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Okay, if you remember all the way back to Genesis, uh, there was a man named Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham, who would be the father of the Israelite nation, the Jewish nation. And he made a promise that you will have a son. And through your son, through your son, countless and countless people will come from you, Abraham. And these people that come from you will be blessed. They will be God's chosen people. Well, Abraham was married to a woman named Sarah. And Sarah was thinking, you know what? I'm starting to get a little bit old here and no child is coming through me. So clearly God must be speaking to, it's gonna come from Abraham, but I've, I've gotta figure out a way to give Abraham a child. So Sarah, in her wisdom, decides to give Abraham her husband, another woman named Hagar. It's Sometimes you read Genesis and you feel like you're reading a soap opera. This is one of those instances. Now, as I go on in the story, I, I highlight that because God's promise that he would build the Jewish, the Israelite community through Abraham's son with his wife, Sarah, not Abraham with Hagar, Sarah's servant. So, she gives birth to a son named Ishmael. And God says, I haven't chosen Ishmael, I've chosen Isaac. So there is a distinction right then and there that God says, I didn't choose Ishmael. The son of promise is going to come through Abraham and Sarah, and name would be Isaac. I read on verse, chapter 9, verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election, predestination, might stand not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as, is it, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Okay? You may have heard of this verse before, but this is where the verse, it's a quote from the Old Testament prophet Malachi, but this is a very popular verse of, see, contradiction. God so loved the world, sent his only son, quote John 3, 16, but then they're like, see, Jake, or God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. And they walk away from the conversation because they, they think, well, clearly God loved someone, but he hated. If that's who God is and that's what God's like, I want nothing to do with God. So this, this section here, these few verses, makes it pretty clear God made a choice between two brothers. Okay, They were twins, as a matter of fact. 
God says, I chose Jacob, but I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. Okay, God made a choice. Now, this brings up all sorts of questions just from this one verse. How on earth is this fair? Where is the justice in God choosing one son, the younger brother actually, over the older brother? How about do our our individual lives have any bearing whatsoever on God's choice? Meaning if God's going to choose us, is there something we can do to make his choice like where we appear more favorable to God, where he'd look at our lives and be like, of course, you're on my team. No, no, no. Davis, you're off the team. Like, is there something that I can do that would help God or cause God to choose me? Now, does God just choose a few people, a lot of people? Does he just choose all people in the end? Like at the end of eternity, or not end of eternity, but at the end of our time, is everyone going to be chosen by God? How about this question? Does God really hate some and love others? It says right there, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, I'm going to start with that first question, or that last question first. So in order to understand this verse right here, when you hear the word hate, what do you think of? It's a very emotionally charged word. And it's hate in our context, in our culture, in our understanding When we think of the word hate, we are understanding it as a very emotionally charged feeling that desires to see someone harmed, desires to see the destruction of somebody. So is that what God is saying is, I have such strong emotionally charged feelings that I want to destroy this man Esau. That's not how hate was understood in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament if you were to look at just ancient Near East of how people understood the word hate and how they actually even used the word hate, hate had less to do with emotions and it had everything to do with priorities. It had everything not to do with emotionally how you felt about someone, but it had to do with priorities or preference or commitment. So when it says, Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated, This is the proper way to understand that is to say, I have chosen Jacob, but I have not chosen Esau. I am committed to Jacob, but I'm not committed to Esau. Jacob has priority. Esau does not have priority. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that that's easier, but I'm trying to help us understand that when it says God hates, okay, if you're familiar with the New Testament, when Jesus says, if anyone is going to come after me, he must hate his mother or father, his brother, his sister, his family. If you're familiar with that, you're like, okay, wait a minute. That's breaking a Ten Commandment right there. So how am I supposed to love Jesus, but then I hate my mom? No, Jesus is saying your commitment, your priority in life is first and foremost to your relationship with God. Okay? Now the question, was God's choice of Jacob, was it based on anything? Did he look at Jacob and say, wow, you're going to be a better person, so I pick you, your brother Esau, he's just going to be, you know, not such a good person. Was there anything that Jacob or Esau did to merit God choosing one over the other? Now, if you go back and read it again, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but the one who calls. So the answer is no. 
There was nothing that Esau did to be rejected by God, and there was nothing that Jacob did to be chosen by God. Now, again, I'm pulling a lot on the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the story of Jacob, do you know what Jacob's story is marked by? He was a deceiver and a manipulator. Like, if you were to know the story of Jacob, he had many enemies. He lied, manipulated, and deceived many people. So there's no way that God looked at Jacob and said, well, I'm going to take the liar, manipulator, and deceiver over Esau. I'm mentioning this because I want us to understand that there was nothing good or bad that Jacob or Esau did. God made a choice. Okay? This is predestination. God chooses. God makes a choice. Now, the obvious question, I'm trying to make this as logical as I can, isn't this the most horrific case of favoritism. Like, I don't want to worship a God who plays favorites. That takes you back to Greek mythology, where you're just worshiping gods like Zeus, and you have no idea where you stand with him, so you try the best you can to appease him, but he plays favorites. Is this an example of God ultimately playing favorites? If you say that God's choice was because Jacob was a better guy, Esau was not such a good guy, then yeah, God's playing favorites. If God's choice was based on something that Jacob did or something Esau didn't do, then we've got a serious case of favoritism that God's playing. But this is not favoritism because God's choice had nothing to do with what Jacob would do or not do, or same thing with Esau. God's choice was based on his sovereign grace. That's it. And this is the thing with favoritism. If you've ever been at the the wrong end of someone playing favorites, you know how painful it is. You know when you don't get chosen, you don't get selected, you don't get loved, you don't get picked. It's painful. I mean, how many of us could go back to the middle school where you're the last guy picked on the team, standing around and no one wants you? Why? Because you looked funny, you couldn't do something as well as other kids, whatever it might be. It hurts. If that's what this is, if that's what God is doing, I'm not sure God can be God because this is not holiness. So my point is very simple. Grace trumps favoritism. God was gracious, meaning it was not his choice was not based on something Jacob or Esau did. Now, the obvious response as we continue with the argument is, if God's not playing favorites, then this is just, it's not fair. It is absolutely not fair for God to choose Jacob over Esau. It is not fair for God to choose you over me, okay? So this is the next question. Is it fair that God would make a choice between two people, not based on anything they would do or not do, he just makes a choice? How is that possibly fair? Paul says in verse 14 and 15, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Paul's response emphatically is no, not at all. It makes sense to ask that question is, I'll ask it again. What then do we say? Is God unjust? Is God not being fair in choosing one person over the other? He goes on, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have I have compassion. How is it fair? How is it just that God could look at one and say, I choose him, he gets compassion and mercy and grace. I don't choose him, 
he doesn't get compassion, mercy, and grace. How is that possibly just? Now, as you think about that question, I'll put another question for you to think about. Do you really want God to be fair to you? Do you really want God to be just to you? Now, as you sit with that and really think about that, be careful to say, well, yes, I really want God to be just. I want God to be fair. Because I'm actually sitting here thinking, I don't want God to be just or fair to me. Because God's justice or God's fairness demonstrated to Michael Davis would mean eternity separated from God in hell. Why? Because that's the consequences of my sin. I sinned against God. I rebelled against God. I chose to be my own God, do my own thing. So justice declares that I would be punished. Rightfully so. That's justice. That's fairness. So as we think about, do we really want God to be just? Do we really want God to be fair? Be careful that you jump to the answer of, yeah, I want God, I want his divine justice on my life. Everyone gets justice from God, everyone. But this is the doctrine of election predestination. Not everyone gets mercy. Not everyone gets compassion. Not everyone gets grace. Okay, I'll say it one more time. Everybody gets divine justice. Everyone, without excuse. But not everyone will get divine mercy. Not everyone will get divine grace. I know the argument is still, it just, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right that God would give mercy to one and not mercy to someone else. It just doesn't seem fair. And I think why we struggle with this concept of just fairness and accusing God that he's not being fair or just in doing this is because we start from the premise that I deserved to be saved. We start from the foundation that God has to save me. God has to redeem me. And so I'll ask another question. Is God required to save you? Is God obligated to save a fallen people? Is God obligated to love, reach out to a, a world that has rejected him, rebelled against him? Is God obligated to do that? If you're familiar with the story of the angels, when the angels rebelled against God in heaven, they fell, kicked them out of heaven. There was no plan of redemption for them. So if you say, yes, that God is obligated to save me, he's obligated to be gracious to me, he's obligated to be merciful to me. If you say, yes, that God is obligated to do those things, You've just nullified grace. You can't demand that God be gracious to you or God is obligated to be gracious to you because that's not grace. Grace is undeserved. It's unmerited. So if you require that God has to save, it's, it's not grace. It's not mercy. If you answer no, that God is not required to save me, if you answer no to that, Now you're on the right road to understanding what grace and mercy actually mean. Grace means unmerited. Grace means undeserved. Grace means I don't deserve anything from God. The fact that he even gives me life is a gift. The fact that he sent his son to save us, that is grace off the charts. Say it again. Everyone gets divine justice, but not 
everyone gets divine mercy. How does then, how does God decide who gets what? How does God decide who, everyone gets justice, but how does he decide who gets mercy or who gets grace? If you have in mind that God just like opened up a cosmic, you know, phone book and was like, hmm, I'm in the A section now. Let's see which one I like here. And then flips throughout to all the way through Z. And I guess, well, there's, there's who the elect are. God did not randomly or arbitrarily just pick people on some whimsical feeling that he had. So the question is, how does God decide whom he elects? Well, is it conditional or is it unconditional? Okay, I've already kind of raised this question, but is God's choice, is it conditioned on something we would do? Meaning, did God look through the corridors of time and eternity past and say, wow, Michael Davis, he is going to be a hard-hearted, rebellious individual. I'm not choosing him. And then would he look at someone else and look at my wife? And would he say, wow, Kyla Davis, what a phenomenal woman she is going to be. I choose her. Michael, no. Kyla, yes. I do not believe, okay, that's called conditional election. I do this, God does that. Okay, that's what conditional election means. I think and I believe pretty firmly that the Bible actually teaches unconditional election. There is nothing you can do that would ever cause God to find you more favorably or be more gracious towards you. So God chooses people according to his grace, his mercy, his sovereign plan. This is what Paul says in Romans 9, verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That one verse right there, hopefully for all of us, brings us so much freedom because there are so many people who live their lives trying to perform for God. There are so many people who live under the weight of, if I do this, then God will love me less. But if I do this, God's going to love me more. That one verse, Romans 9, 16, should set humanity free from the concept or the thought of a performance-driven, performance-based faith. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That, to me, brought so much freedom when I began to understand this. It set me free from trying to earn something from God. So, I want to finish our time by asking some really challenging questions in light of this doctrine. I've only highlighted a few verses, but what I wanted to do this morning was raise the question uh, and walk through these verses in Romans to make clear God predestines people. God makes a choice. He gave the example initially of Jacob and Esau. Jacob, I have chosen. I'm committed to him. He has priority. Esau, I am not committed to him. My covenant is not with him. So the questions that I'm going to walk through, four questions, and uh, some of these questions will will be really, really difficult, uh, and the answers might not be sufficient for you, but I need to at least raise the questions because they're questions I think all of us are thinking about. So question number one, does God elect or choose to save everyone? Okay, Question number one, does God elect or choose 
to save everyone or all? Meaning, does everybody get mercy from God? Okay, so the answer to that I've already answered is no. God does not choose to save all, which I think leads to an even harder question. Why? He's God. He can do whatever he wants. He has all the power in the universe to save every single human on the planet that was ever existed. If God has the power to choose or to save everyone to ensure the salvation of everyone, why does not God, why doesn't he do it? I know that God does not choose everyone, but my question is why? If he can, why doesn't he do it? R.C. Sproul answered this question, and it's a hard answer, uh, but it also brings comfort. The only answer I can give to this question is that I don't know. I have no idea why God saves some, but not all. I don't doubt for a moment that God has the power to save all, but I know that he does not choose to save all. I don't know why. One thing I do know, if it pleases God to save some and not all, there is nothing wrong with that. God is not under obligation to save anybody. If there was only five people in the entire human race that God had saved, that would not only be God's prerogative, but that would be a demonstration that at least five people got saved. When I consider the multitudes of tribes and nations and people that have been saved by God, God's love and God's grace just is magnified that when you understand he doesn't have to save anyone, but he chooses to save, it is such a gracious thing that God would do, would save anyone. God gives mercy, but he does not give mercy to all. Now, with this, everyone gets justice, but not everyone gets mercy. I want you to know that no one gets injustice. It would be very easy to come up with the argument, well, Esau, God was unjust towards Esau because he wasn't picked. No, Esau received divine justice. There was nothing unjust done to Esau. But what Esau did not receive was divine grace or divine mercy like his younger brother received from God. I like how Spurgeon uh, said this. He said, what amazes me is not that God does not choose everyone, but rather that he's chosen me. There has to be a moment in your journey with God where you are absolutely humbled to think, I don't know why, but God has set his affection on me. I don't know why, but God has opened up my heart to understand him, to receive him, to receive his son. If there's anything in you that says, well, of course, I'm such a great spiritual person, you have no clue of the grace of God. This truth, this doctrine of election should just humble all of humanity, but make it personal. It should humble you. It should humble me. That none of us deserve to be chosen or by God, but the fact that he has should absolutely be amazing. We kind of get this concept in a much smaller scale. If President Obama at the end of his term decided to pardon prisoners, which every president, by the way, pardons prisoners, it's like the last thing that they do. Sometimes there's a bunch, sometimes there's not much, but there's always presidential pardons. At prisons across the, the nation, there are not prisoners who are thinking, well, that's, that's completely unjust. 
Obama didn't pick me to be set free. Okay, we understand the concept that just because one person receives a pardon does not necessitate that everyone has to receive a pardon. Everyone gets justice, but not everyone gets mercy. We understand that at a much smaller scale with the Obama example. Now, some of you, if you're familiar with Scripture, will say, well, Michael, doesn't the Bible teach that God desires everyone to be saved? Doesn't the Bible clearly say that God wants all of humanity to be saved? And the answer to that is, guess what? Yes. Here's some verses. 1 Timothy 2. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. How about 2 Peter? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That language makes, looks like there's a contradiction. How can he only choose some, but then say he desires that all men will be saved, that everyone would come to repentance? How many of you have more than one desire? Okay, all of us, right? All of us have at least two desires in our life. We are people that are filled with desires. God, who we were created in his image, has multiple desires as well. God's greatest desire, though, is not that all men would be saved. God's greatest desire is that God would be glorified in all things, by all people at all times. God's greatest desire is for his glory. So it is not inconsistent to say that God can desire the salvation, but his greater desire is that he would be glorified. And I, has, as a created person, as a human I have to submit to the fact, to the reality that I am not God. And if what glorifies God most is that some are chosen and some are not, some receive mercy and some don't, if God receives greater glory in that somehow, some way, then he's allowed to do that. Now, I submit to you that this is especially a very hard one to understand. But there also are times in life where you have to say, I'm not God. I'm not an eternal being. I don't have all knowledge, all power like God does. And if this one truth brings him greater glory because he's God and that, God, that is God's greatest desire, he can do that. Question number two, how can I know if I am one of the elect? Anytime that I've had conversations with people about predestination or election, their first fear is, what if I'm not chosen? Some of you might be sitting here today and you might be thinking to yourself, wow, if God chooses some but not all, how do I know if I'm one of the chosen? How do I know if God has chosen, elected, predestined me to be in heaven with him forever? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I guarantee there are many people here who've already had that thought of, how do I know if I'm one of the chosen? And the beauty of this answer is it is so simple. Do you know Jesus Christ as God's Son, Savior? Have you received the provision, the salvation that God has provided for you? Have you received that? Have you recognized Jesus as God's Son and received Him as your Savior? If you've done that, you're elect. It's that simple. Jesus says this in John, Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become Children of, John, uh, children of God. That's what John the Baptist said. 
It's very simple. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at Romans 10, but it says this, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I don't want anyone to walk out of here today with a fear of, I don't know if I'm the elect or if I'm not the elect. Do you know Jesus? Have you confessed Jesus as your savior? When you stand before God in heaven one day and he looks at you and he says, why would I let you into this kingdom? Well, because I received your son Jesus Christ as the penalty, as a payment for my sin. I received his righteousness. I didn't try to self-save. I didn't try to work my way to you. It's all on Jesus. That's how you know today, right now, if you're of the elect. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus as you sit here today, that doesn't mean you're not of the elect, but you're here for today for the very reason that God wants you to hear this message of he wants to save. Question number three, two more questions. How does predestination impact free will? If God has decided our destinies, that would suggest our free choices are not so free. Are we merely puppets on a string? How many people wrestle with this? If election is true, predestination is true, that God has determined for us eternity, then I'm just nothing more than a puppet on a string. So I, I go like this, well, God wrote that in his script, and I go like this, and I'm just kind of walking around, and God is pulling my strings. I have no freedom. I have no choices. So how does predestination impact free will? Now, some would argue, first of all, you have to ask the question, what is free will, right? What does it actually mean to have free will? Some would just argue that it's the ability to make choices without any prior prejudice, inclination, or disposition for the will to be free, people would say, it must act from a posture of neutrality with no bias. That's free will, okay? Now, do you really want free will? Because if that is free will defined right there, for the will to be free, it must act from a posture of neutrality with absolutely no bias, you've got two major problems. Problem number one, if choices are strictly from a neutral posture, with no prior inclination, then we make, no cho we make choices for no reason. And if you make choices for no reason, then the choices you make have no significance. If you make choices from a posture of no influence, no bias from something or someone outside, you're making very random choices. And anything that is random does not have any significance. It does not have meaning. Secondly, if there was no prior inclination, desire, bent, or motivation, or reason for a choice, why would you ever choose anything? How many people saw Alice in Wonderland? Okay, four of you. Well, let me tell you about the film. There's a girl named Alice. She's the main character. There's another scary-looking cat known as a Cheshire cat. Alice comes to a fork in the road. Alice looks to the Cheshire cat and says, Cheshire cat, which way, which way should I go? The Cheshire cat in all of his wisdom says, well, where are you going? Alice wisely says, I don't know. Then the Cheshire cat says, then it doesn't matter. Alice has four choices. 
She can go left, she can go right, she can go back from where she came from, or she can just stand there and die. Now, it would be a terrible movie if she just stood there and died, so she made a choice. Okay, I bring this example up of for her to make a choice, she would need a prior motivation to do so. For her to go left, there would need to be some disposition, inclination, motivation, reason to go left, to go backwards, to go right. Okay? My big point is this. Free will does not mean that we have no prior motivation. Okay? Free will means that God has granted us the ability to make choices based upon desire. And so what we need God to do in us is plant within our hearts to motivate us to do godly choices, to be a godly person. God uses our choices to accomplish his purposes in our life. But to declare that we don't want any outside motivation is absolutely ridiculous. That is not free will. I mean, if you really think about it, ultimately, no one has free will. All of us are motivated by someone or something to go left, to go right, to go forwards, to go backwards. We all have a motivating, influencing factor in our lives. But what we need God to do is to influence, to motivate our choices so that we would choose him. If God did not motivate me to choose him, you know what? I wouldn't choose him. My heart would be bent on just rebellion and doing evil. So free will, I need God, we need God to motivate, to inspire, to encourage, to lead, to prompt us to choose him. He uses our choice, but he motivates our decisions. Jesus said it like this, no one can come to, the, to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. I can't do, I can't even think a godly thought unless God had inspired me to think that godly thought. I can't even put two thoughts together about God unless God has been working, inspiring, motivating, leading, cultivating in me desires that would desire him. There's nothing in me and nothing in you that would ever desire God. So we need God to use our desires to influence the choices that we make. That's the question of how does predestination impact free will? Can you imagine, just for a moment, if God didn't do that? Can you imagine a world in which an all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, eternal, holy, gracious, sovereign, and loving God stepped back? Can you imagine if God just said, you're all on your own? I, I, I would not want to live in that world. I am thankful that a loving, gracious, merciful, kind, righteous, sovereign God uses my desires to make choices that would choose him. It's interesting to me in talking to others about free will is that we are so bent on having free will. We are so bent that God has to give us free will. But then when God makes a choice, when God exercises his free will, we point our finger in his face and say, that's not fair. We demand that God gives us the ability to choose, but when God makes a choice, we shake our fist in his face and say, how dare you make a choice? <laughs> Spurgeon said it like this, it always seems inexplicable to me 
that those who claim free will so very boldly for man should not also allow some free will for God, some free will to God. Why should not Jesus Christ have the right to choose his own bride? This is a tough one, but I want you to know that God uses your choices to accomplish his purpose in your life. You are not a puppet on a string, but God is influencing you. God is motivating you to make choices that accomplish his purpose in your life. The last question, we'll just finish with this. How do I live day to day in light of this doctrine? What does like everyday life look like? Predestination is not John Calvin's thing, it's God's thing. It's a very biblical doctrine. So how should this shape literally how I live every single day? And I'm going to say these so quickly, please write them down. The first one is simply this, humbly. Because the doctrine of predestination and election, because God made a choice and God chose you, there is absolutely no room at all in your life for pride. We have nothing to be boastful or prideful or arrogant about. I can never flex my spiritual muscles before God and be like, are you so impressed? The doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, what it should do for me on a day-to-day basis is absolutely humble me. Why? Because God chose. God made a decision based on his mercy and his grace not because you did something or didn't do something. That is absolutely humbling. The second one, so live humbly. The second one is live a very Christ-centered life. I mentioned before, everyone gets divine justice, but not everyone gets divine mercy. If you are a Christian, if you have received, recognized Jesus as God's son, received him as your savior, he did it. He He took God's wrath fully on himself so that you would not have to bear God's divine justice, meaning his wrath. Jesus paid it all for you. Our response to Jesus should be, Jesus, I'm humbled by what you have done. My decision is to live for you in all things, in all times, in all places. There's not a moment in my day where it should be divorced from my life is about Jesus. My life is about Christ. All of this is about him. Why? Because Jesus did it all for me. He paid the penalty. He took God's divine wrath, and he's the demonstration of God's divine mercy. Because of him, I live for him. Like how Paul said it in Corinthians, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Lastly, live humbly, live Christ-centered, and lastly, live missionally. Defining the term missional, it means share your faith, talk about Jesus. People have always asked me, well, if election is true, what's the point of ever sharing my faith? What's the point of telling others about Jesus? Because one day they'll discover it on their own. If they're elect, they'll figure it out. What's the point of even talking, preaching, proclaiming, or inviting other people to come to Jesus? Paul gave his life for preaching the gospel. Why would he do that? If he believed in the doctrine of election, which he clearly does, why would he give his life for preaching the gospel? 2 Timothy says this, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Hypothetically, go back to the first century. 
Would you have shared your faith with Paul uh, when his name was Saul? Okay, if you're, if you're familiar with Saul's story, he was a murderer and he was trying to condemn Christians and kill the, the, the movement known as the church. Would you have shared your faith with this guy, Paul? No, none of us would. Why? Well, he's clearly not one of the elect. He's actually trying to kill the elect. He's actually trying to kill the church. Why would I share my faith with a guy like that? Who would have thunk that the guy who was the greatest voice against the church would became the greatest voice or champion for the church? My point is this. You have no idea who is elect and who is not elect. For you to ever play the game because someone looks more righteous, well, they clearly have to be one of the elect, is ridiculous. For you to ever look at someone and be like, they are just way too, too far gone, they're too far evil, there's no way that God would ever choose them, is absolutely ridiculous. If you're at all familiar with the biblical story, God chooses the weirdest people, the most sometimes vilest people, evil people, the most rebellious people to accomplish his greatest work. So because I don't know, I can't look at anyone, elect or not elect, and play that game. My heart is, God has chosen me. How do I know that? Well, because I've received Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. My job, my joy, my privilege, my mission is to go preach and proclaim and invite everyone to receive Jesus. Today, as we would uh, celebrate communion, I want you to respond to God. If you're a Christian, I know that there are still more questions to be asked uh, and to be answered. Uh, We'll finish the next part of Romans 9 next week. But if you're a Christian, today I just want you to sit where you are, and as we worship, I want you to literally just pray, God, thank you. God, thank you that you've chosen me. Thank you that you've called me. God, thank you that you have softened my heart, opened my mind to understand and to receive you. Let there be humility in how you would respond to God in light of this doctrine today. This is not some dead doctrine that should have no meaning or impact on your life. It should be a doctrine that literally humbles all of us to the point where we say, God, thank you. I didn't deserve any of this but you've given me everything. Please say thank you. In humility, respond. And as you would come and take communion today, look at the cross and say, Jesus, thank you for doing this for me. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you've been listening to this message, you'd be like, wow, God's chosen some and not others. I'm not sure which one I, I am. Make the decision today to receive Jesus Christ as your savior. Confess him as God's son. And guess what? As you do that, you are one of the elect. You're God's children. You are adopted into God's family. If you've not made that decision, I don't know why you would want to leave here today without the knowledge and the, uh, the absolute security of knowing that you are one of God's elect, that you are chosen by God as one of God's family. If you're not a Christian, become a Christian today. Recognize Jesus and receive him as your savior, as a provision for your salvation.